Ephesians, and I believe this is one of the most important books that we have in the Bible, and this is really a book that you kind of have to follow and just stay with it, or you'll miss out something that might cause you not to understand something as well as you need to. So I encourage everybody, please come on Wednesday nights as we talk about this. I think one of the things that we really need to do in our church as uh, followers of the Lord, as Christians, is to know as much about the Bible as we can learn. And uh, we don't want to spend all of our time talking about just salvational issues. That's very, very important to us. But there's lots of other things in the Bible to talk about that lead up to salvational issues. And we need to know those things to understand what the, much better what the Lord has done for us. We want to look at Ephesians chapter 2 tonight. And we come to the portion of the second chapter, which is one of the Bible's clearest statements on how that we're saved. And the book of Acts... Paul and Silas were asked a very simple, straightforward question by the Philippian jailer. He said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas gave him a very simple, straightforward, to-the-point answer. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And those are the kind of answers that most of us want. We want answers that go right to the point and tell us exactly what we need to know. Well, I believe that these verses that we'll study tonight in Ephesians chapter 2 are the Bible's clearest statement on how we're saved. Most of us, when we're very young, we memorize John 3.16. But if you came from a Baptist household like I did, you also memorize Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 because these verses are sort of like the oath of allegiance, and these are the secret handshake almost for Baptist people. And this evening I've titled the message, The Baptist Way is the Bible Way. And I call it that because the main body of Christians down through history are the only ones who have uh, taught, the Baptist people are the only ones who have taught Ephesians chapter 2 without adding anything to it and without subtracting anything from it. Historically, the Baptists are the only ones who have maintained doctrinal integrity on salvation by grace through faith alone, all the way back to the time of the apostles. I'm not saying, of course, that there aren't other groups that teach this today, because there are uh, many people who believe this, but I can tell you this, if they believe it, they got it from the Baptists, because we got it from Jesus and the apostles. Now, also, admittedly, today, there are some Baptists who are mixed up on some of the elements of these verses. And what we preach here at Berean are what our Baptist forefathers preached. And I don't think that the Word of God ever changes. It always stays the same. So I'm not ashamed at all to say that we preach the same doctrines that our Baptist forefathers preach. And I am content to preach those doctrines. So let's look at these verses tonight. The Baptist way is the Bible way. And I might also add to that that it is the Berean way. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, if you would please. A very important text. And actually, I think what we ought to do tonight, won't we all just read it together? Read with me as we look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these great verses of Scripture. 
And how, Lord, these thrill our heart to know about salvation. Salvation, all of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that for that, Lord. And we just ask you might bless as we talk about your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In many ways, I believe that this portion of the scriptures is one of the most difficult texts that we can preach. The subject matter that we're going to talk about tonight is really may not be so difficult. But when we think about how all of this ties together with what we've said before and how what we're reading tonight is the very crux of eternal matters, then we must consider that this is a very difficult portion of Scripture to preach. Now, I preached 14 sermons from the book of Ephesians as we've led up to these point, this point, And Paul has had a lot to say. He's laid a lot of groundwork as we get to this text tonight. And some have said that these verses contain the most important doctrinal statement that we have in the book of Ephesians. And that's really saying something when you think about all of these great doctrines that we've talked about in these past few weeks. Well, why is this particular portion of Scripture so important? Well, it is because what we find here is the real essence of Christianity. Because in three verses, what Paul has done, he's reduced all that it means to be a Christian down into one very simple formula. And if we look at these verses, Paul tells us why we became Christians, how we became Christians, and what we are as Christians. And those are the areas that I'd like to focus on in the sermon tonight. We want to talk about why, how, and what about Christians. So let's begin tonight with this. And we notice, first of all, this evening, the purpose of salvation. What is the purpose of salvation? Now, I think it's very interesting that when Paul started writing the second chapter, he, he begins by laying out before us the depravity of man. And he brings us to a place where we are just in total desperation. And he shows us that there's absolutely no hope in ourselves. There's nothing in our natural condition that would ever lead us to Christ. And he's writing this, and he's explaining it, and he's going over and over these things again. And it's almost as if Paul just can't wait to let out this secret of why Christians can have hope. And so we read this even before we get to this eighth verse. In verse number five, Paul said, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. And almost as an afterthought, but not really an afterthought, though Paul puts that, that, that phrase in parentheses, by grace are ye saved. And, and he, in, those verse, in that verse, he, he comes to the conclusion that anyone who wants to know why that we are where we are, it's because of God's grace. If you are a Christian, it is because of God's grace. Now, as we think about the why of salvation, I want to give you the inferior and the superior answers to why we are Christians. Now, first of all, let me give you the inferior answer, and that answer is to bring us to life. Why are we Christians? So that God can bring us to life. Now, I say that that is an inferior answer, not because it's unimportant and not because we ought to skip over this. What I, just, what I mean by inferior is just that this is not the primary answer. This is one of the answers, but it's not the primary answer. And here is where much of the world of Christianity goes wrong because they look at this particular answer as being the primary one. And their answer to this whole business of salvation salvation and becoming Christians is that it's all about me. It's all about me and the world revolves around me. 
Now, you may remember I quoted from Robert Schuller just a few weeks ago, and he said, modern theology has erred by making our theology God-centered instead of man-centered. And that's what most of the world would like to believe. It should be man-centered. It's all about us. And unfortunately, that idea has infiltrated our Baptist ranks today so that what most Baptists believe about this is not the old-time Baptist way, and it's not the Bible way. The inferior or the secondary answer of salvation was that God planned this to bring us to life. Now, I don't want to minimize that. That's important, and that's certainly a necessary step. Now, that statement takes us back to the beginning of chapter 2 and also to the first part of verse number 5. Now, Paul says there that we were dead. And if we weren't dead, it wouldn't be necessary to bring us to life. I mean, if we were already alive, it wouldn't be necessary to talk about this whole issue of salvation and we wouldn't be talking about being restored and reconciled to God. We're dead. And so that means that there's no life in us at all. And so the very first thing that has to happen to a person before they can become a Christian, before they can know the Lord, is that they have to be brought to life. And so God has brought us to salvation in order to bring us to life. And, of course, we lost our life in Adam. When Adam sinned, we became debilitated towards God. We became totally alienated from God. And the consequence of the fall of Adam was when all of us became dead in sins. And so God sent Christ into the world to provide salvation for us. And he came here to bring us back to spiritual life. And we had lost that in the fall of Adam. So why are we Christians? Because God has brought us to life. And so whenever you hear someone say, well, I've always been a Christian, or I was born a Christian, or I was born into a Christian family, so therefore I am a Christian. I was born in a Christian nation, so therefore I am a Christian. All of those answers are wrong, because no one comes into this world that way. We come into the world dead in trespasses and sin, and God has to bring us to life. And that's what salvation's all about. Now, that's one of the whys why we are Christians. But I want you to keep in mind, though, that is the inferior answer because there is a superior answer as to why we are Christians. And that's what I want to talk about next, the superior answer. And what is that? To glorify God. The superior answer, the primary answer is to glorify God. And so if you are a Christian, God saved you, and he's brought you to life for this central primary purpose, and that is to glorify God. And all that we need to do is go back to chapter 1, and we can see this very clearly stated. In verse number 12 of chapter 1, Paul says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And that's a very important statement. Because what are we talking about tonight? Well, in verse number 8 of chapter 2, part of our text tonight, it says that salvation is by grace through faith. And you see these words, trusted in Christ, in chapter 1, verse number 12, and you see faith in chapter 2, verse number 8. It's very clear to us that these concepts are the same and that faith must also be for the glory of God. And so you see the reason why that Paul or that God has exalted unworthy, undeserving sinners such as we are is that we will always be to the praise of his glory. So if you ever wonder why people such as we are would ever be allowed to go into heaven, that's the primary reason, that we would be to the praise of his glory. Now, I like this part because in this, I see the true desires of God. 
All of you know that I'm a person who believes in election. I believe in predestination. I believe that God has chosen people from eternity past to salvation. But that does not stop me from believing that God's desire is that all of creation will glorify him. And I think that's why that we are able to make a bona fide uh, offer of the gospel to all people. All men can be saved if they'll just believe. And that's why we can reconcile certain passages of Scripture, like 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we believe that. It's a true statement. But we can also reconcile that with John chapter 3, verse 27, which says, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. So the salvation has to begin with God. But we have no problem at all preaching the gospel to all people without distinction because it is God's purpose to glorify himself through the salvation of lost sinners. Now, why God saves who he saves? I don't know. I can't, I can't speak for God in that area. That's his business. But I just know that whatever he does, it will honor and glorify him. So the why of salvation is primarily the glory of God, and then secondarily, to bring spiritually dead people to life. Now let's go on to the second question about salvation. And this is the how of salvation. And we cover it, uh, uh, this question under this heading, the power of salvation. So first is the purpose of salvation. That gives us the why. And now the power of salvation. And that answers the question, how do we become Christians? And I would suppose that this is the most abused and, and most misdirected and most misunderstood part of all of God's salvation. How do we become Christians? And there's a lot of false information that's floating around out there. There's lots of ideas about how a person can become a Christian. And really, all of the ways boil down to just two ways, actually. There may be all different kinds of plans out there, but they all boil down to one of two ways. Either salvation is by works or salvation is by grace. Now, those are two mutually mutually exclusive principles. There is no such thing as a mixture of grace and works. Now, Paul states this in Romans chapter 11. He says, Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Now, Paul's saying that these are mutually exclusive principles. And so what this means is there is no room in salvation, either in the past, the present, or the future, for works. So works could never be the procuring cause of salvation. They could never be the sustaining cause of salvation. And they could never be a prospective cause of salvation. So we can come down to this statement and very simply state it this way. Salvation begins and ends with grace. Salvation begins and ends in grace. Now, Ephesians 2.8 begins, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Now, if we go back to Romans chapter 11, that verse takes us all the way to eternity past. And we see there the beginning of salvation in the election of God. And one of Paul's arguments on the sovereign choices of God included a statement that he made about Jacob and Esau. In Romans chapter 9, Paul said that God chose Jacob over Esau before either of them was born. 
And so he states that to show that neither of these children had any opportunity to do anything that was good or bad. And his argument culminates in the statement of Romans chapter 11, verse 6. And so there is a comparison there with God's election with us before the world began. And so what he's trying to teach us is that God has not chosen us based upon anything that he foresaw in us. Because if salvation came that way, then salvation would not be by grace. Salvation would be by our works. But most of our Baptist brethren today try to mitigate the doctrine of election by saying that election is based upon God foreseeing that we would choose Christ. But if that were true, salvation would be of works. Now, Romans chapter 11, verses 5 through 6 prove that that could not be true. So even our election began in grace. Now, let's keep in mind, though, that election is not salvation. Election is unto salvation, and salvation is something that occurs in time. And so, we are saved in time, and in the present, salvation must also be by grace. Now, that comes clear to us, or very clear, that this has to be the case when we see how Paul states our condition in verses 1 through 3 of the second chapter, and nothing is worse than our condition. When you read those three verses, nothing is wrong Uh, nothing is worse than our condition. And you think, could we ever read that and come to a conclusion that we deserve salvation? Could you read those three verses and conclude that we actually could do anything good at all? That we could actually please God when the scriptures are so very clear when it says that we are disobedient, we, we walk in our lust, we fulfill the desires of the flesh... So how could we ever determine that salvation could be anything other than by God's grace? Now, maybe we need to understand grace a little bit better. Grace means something that's given uh, when nothing is deserved. It means nothing worthy. It means nothing earned. And those first three verses show us we have earned nothing. Nothing has accumulated to our good. Salvation, in all of its aspects, must be by grace. But there are some who say, well, I agree with you on that. I agree. We are saved by grace, but now I must watch how I live. I've got to be careful about my sin or else I'm going to lose my salvation. And so they believe that they are sustained and they maintain salvation by their good works. Well, here's something that I have consistently maintained. And that is a person who believes that salvation can be lost. If they honestly hold a position that their salvation can be lost, then they don't understand grace. And consequently, I don't think that they can be saved. Now, I do think it's possible for people to become confused about this after they're saved, and they may wonder about some things, but I don't think that a person could be at the point of receiving Christ as a Savior and think they could lose their salvation and that somehow they have to keep up the payments on their salvation by the works that they do. Grace and works can never mix. And we see that from Paul's argument in Romans chapter 11. But I want you to listen to another statement that Paul makes in the book of Galatians because there he writes in chapter 3, This only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? And so what Paul is saying here is, if you were saved by grace, then what makes you think that you are kept by your works? Grace and works don't mix. And he concludes that argument in Galatians chapter 5 where he says in verse 4, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. 
Now, amazingly enough, there are proponents of the doctrine that say you can lose your salvation who will take Galatians chapter 5, verse 4 and try to use that as a proof text. And they say, well, there it says it, right there. Ye are fallen from grace. And so that must mean that you can lose your salvation. But actually, they've missed the whole point of the argument Paul's trying to make. You can't fall from grace by breaking the law and by sinning because you weren't saved by keeping the law and keeping from sinning. You weren't saved that way. So Paul is saying if you believe the law justified you, then you have completely missed out on the meaning of grace. And so therefore you have fallen short of this principle of grace because grace contains no works. Now that covers the past and the present, but what about the future? I'm not going to spend much time on this because I've already covered it somewhat under the sustaining, under sustaining grace. We are presently saved by grace and we are sustained by grace. But I want to give you just one verse of scripture in the book of 1 John. In 1 John it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. Now the verb cleanseth or cleanses is a verb in the Greek that means a continuous action. The blood keeps on cleansing us from sin. And that would certainly be a proper interpretation of this verse. And so the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ will always keep on cleansing us from our sins. And so we can never be lost because the blood of Jesus is an ever-flowing fountain. It's a fountain that never runs dry. And so his blood continually keeps on cleansing us from our sin. And so our salvation could never be lost. Past, present, and future. Salvation begins and ends in God's grace. Now, secondly, how do we become Christians? And how does God's power work in us? Well, we notice this. Salvation is appropriated by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, the words here, gift of God... That has really sparked a lot of argument over this verse. And the argument is, what is the gift of God? Is it faith? Is it grace? Or is the gift of God salvation itself? And we could argue over that perhaps all night long about which one that verse means, but it all comes down to the very same conclusion. We really don't even need to argue it because faith comes from God, grace comes from God, and all of salvation comes from God. It's a gift of God. Now, what's more important here is that we understand the meaning of each of these components. And we've already talked about grace and we've talked about salvation, but what about faith? Are we saved by faith? And if we're saved by faith, where does that faith come from? Well, there says a lot of confusion about this, and really a wrong view of faith will re- lead you right back to a work salvation if you don't understand faith correctly. And some people do make faith a work. Now, there's a very popular statement that people make, uh, and they say this, faith is the sole condition of salvation. And so in an effort to try to explain that salvation is not by works, some people will say, you are not saved by your works. Faith is the only condition of salvation. Now, actually, that's a very dangerous statement if you don't understand what faith is because what many people believe when they make that statement is that faith is what you bring to the equation. In other words, God does his part and you do your part and your part is to have faith. 
And some people will say, here's what you have to do. You must meet God halfway. He comes so far, but then you have to come the rest of the way. And it's your faith that meets that extra requirement. Brother Dalton showed me a book a week or so ago that was written by a person that I'm not going to name. Many of you are familiar with him. But in this book, he's speaking about God's gift of salvation. And here's what he says. He says, he has done everything he can do. He has paid the price in full for this gift, and now he waits for your decision. In other words, God has done his part, and so now you have to meet him halfway with your faith because that's your part. That is actually a categorical denial of salvation by grace, and that's because faith is also the gift of God. All of salvation is the gift of God, and it makes no sense at all to say that you are saved by grace and then qualify that statement with a man-supplied faith that comes along with it. Now, if that were true, then we could boast of our salvation. We could boast about our faith because we would be able to say, I had faith and so I can, that's why I'm saved. You know, uh, I've even heard this said, thank God that you had the good sense to believe. And so now salvation has come by good sense. Salvation's not by good sense. I mean, salvation... In salvation, all human grounds are excluded. It's all by the grace of God, and there can't be any boasting. And so this is a a travesty of understanding that a man would write a book, a man who calls himself a Baptist and make a statement like that. Not only a Baptist, but a teacher where we send some of our college students. God has done all he can do, and now he awaits your decision. I want you to think about that statement. God has done all he can do. What does that mean? God hasn't done enough yet, doesn't it? You know what it means? I mean, you're, you're lost. God's done all he can do, and you're still lost. So what's the operative thing? What is the thing that actually saves you? Well, they would say it's you, because you had faith. So if God's done all he can do, and you're still not saved, then the only thing left is something that you do to save yourself. Folks, that's not the Baptist way. It's not the Bible way, and it's not what we teach here at Berean. Now, I want you to listen to what a great old-time Baptist said. This is C.H. Spurgeon. Anybody here ever heard of Spurgeon? Of course you've heard of Spurgeon. Here's what C.H. Spurgeon said, and he would disagree with this man's statement. He said, It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy hope in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even thy faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ, blood, and merit. Now, folks, that's the Baptist way, and that's the Bible way. Faith is an instrument of salvation, and the way that grace is appropriated to us is by faith, a faith that God gives. So there's no merit in itself. It's not a decision that saves you. It's Christ that saves you. And shame on a Baptist who would say any different than that. I mean... If faith is the cause of salvation, then you would be able to boast in heaven and say, I was saved by grace plus faith. I was saved by grace plus faith. Instead of I was saved by grace through faith. Through faith is what makes this whole thing work out because that is what God gives, not what we supply. So we don't bring anything to the table. We don't even bring faith to the table. God supplies it for us. Now, let's notice thirdly how that we're saved and the power of salvation. And really, this is almost a redundancy to say this. But thirdly, salvation is God, not me. Now, I want you to notice verse number 9. It says, Not of works, lest any man should boast. 
And folks, that includes faith when faith is made a work. Faith is not man's work, it's God's work. They say, Pastor Smith, where do you get such an idea like that? You mean, it's not my faith that saves me? Well, it's the faith that God gave you and you exercise it, that's true. So Jesus tells us exactly where the faith comes from. Now, in John 6, 28, Jesus was asked a question, and this is so often misinterpreted and people overlook this scripture. But in John 6, 28, they said to Jesus, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And here's Jesus' answer in John 6, 29. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. Now, they wanted to know, what can we do to work the works of God? And Jesus comes right back with the answer, and he says, you can't do the work of God. You can't even believe without God, because belief is God's work. Salvation's not by man's work. It's nothing at all that you bring to the table. Now, your decision, people like to talk about the decision that I made from Christ, and certainly we do believe that people have to make a volitional choice of Christ. There's no question about that. But your decision without God would be totally worthless. You can't even make the right decision. God puts the right decision in you, and that's when you accept or receive Christ by faith. And that's what the Bible says. You know what it says? For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So salvation is God, not me. How do I become a Christian? It's God, not me. It all begins in grace and it ends in grace. It's appropriated by God-given faith. It's God, not me. Now, we need to answer the final question. We've discovered why we're Christians, how we become Christians. And the final question is, what are we as Christians? And Paul also answers this in these verses. Now, thirdly, we look at the potential of salvation. So there's purpose, and there's power, and there's potential that's involved in salvation. Now, when I say potential, I don't mean this in an uncertain sense. If you look up the word potential in the dictionary, when it's used as a noun, it means capability. And so when we become saved, we become capable of something that we couldn't do before. And the potentiality or the capability of salvation is found in verse number 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that God, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So how do we become capable and what do we do when we become capable? Well, first of all, we notice this. We are the product of God's work. Now that's what I've been talking about all along. We're dead in trespasses and sin. We're totally debilitated by the fall. And so we have become totally unable towards God. Now, folks, today there, there are many people that will tell you, you have the power to come to Christ. You don't have to be something different in order to come to Christ. You can be dead and you can come to Christ. But that's not what Paul says. He says we have to be brought from death to life before this can happen. Now, notice what he says in the 10th verse. He says, we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now, if you have a pencil there, underlined in your Bible the word created. We are created. Now, that sounds like something new, doesn't it? It sounds like something different, doesn't it? It sounds like something that hasn't even been in existence before, doesn't it? Wouldn't you agree with me? That's what the word created means. We were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now, what is the first thing that we do upon being created? When we are created, the very first thing we do is to repent and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But some people say, no, you don't have to be created to have faith. You're dead, you still have faith. But folks, 
That's a mixed-up view of salvation. We have to be created in Christ first, and there's not one thing that was ever created that asked to be created. You ever hear of a thing that asked to be created before it was created? And yet that's exactly what people think happens in salvation. When you say that it is my decision that saved me, then you're saying that I was something non-existent asking to be created. That would be exactly the same thing. But salvation is all of God's initiative, and only when he's brought you to life can you make any decisions. So the first thing in knowing that we are Christians is we are a product of God's work. Now, what does that do for us? Well, here's what we become. We are the producers of good works. We are the product of God's work, and we become the producers of good works. Now, let's think about works for just a minute. You know, there are many different kinds of works that are spoken of in the Bible. There are works of the flesh, there are works of darkness, and there are works of wickedness. But there are also works of God, and there are works of righteousness. And if we look at verse number 2 of this chapter, it's apparent to us that all of the works that we had before were works of the flesh, and they were works of darkness, and they are works of wickedness. And so there is no capacity. There's no potential at all for a person to do good works when he's dead because he's dead in trespass and sin. And every time that you think about this whole issue, it should become even clearer to you that nobody who is dead in sins can have faith because there's no capacity to do good works. But when you look at verse number 10, once we have been created in Christ... Now we can produce good works. Now before, Satan's the one who controlled us. And all the works that we did were evil. All works were bad. But now God has regenerated us. He's created us. And he's given us this potential to do good works. And that's when we begin to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. And that's when we show others that we are saved. It's by the good works that we do. Now, what God does then in this God-given faith... What he produces in us is good works. Real faith always produces good works. Now, if faith were your own, you'd never accomplish good works out of your faith. But when God gives you the faith, then you produce good works. Now, here is where Paul and James complement one another. Now, some people say that Paul and James are at variance when they talk about the issue of works. But Paul is saying that you cannot be justified before God by your works. But James is saying, you cannot be justified before men without your works. And that's what he says in James 2.18. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. So the evidence of a Christian are, is the good works that we talk about in Ephesians 2.10. We are created in Christ Jesus for those good works. Now, all of these people then who claim salvation... And yet they've never produced good works in their life, have not shown that Christ is actually the Lord of their life. And so they have no basis on which to claim that they're actually Christians. So what Paul does here is he puts our justification and our good works so closely together that where there is no good works, there is no justification, where those aren't produced. Now, the what 
of a Christian is the thing that we produce. We produce these good works. So here's what happens. You can throw out all of these conversions where people claim to have been saved, where ministers say they were saved, and there aren't any good works produced, where there's no evidence. Now here's what James Montgomery Boyce said. He said, this is stated in such strong language, works which God prepared in advance for us to do, that we are correct in saying that if there are no works... The person involved is not justified. That's how closely works and justification go together. Justification is not produced by works. Justification produces the works. And it always comes out that way. So a person who would ever say, well, I can be saved, and I made this decision way back when, but I've never shown any evidence in my life, better think again. Better think again because salvation always produces good works. How do I know that? Ephesians 2.10 says that we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And the good works to be produced are as certain as the salvation that we have in Christ. Now, this all brings us back to Paul's central theme in salvation. Why would God create us in Jesus unto good works? Why does he do this? Well, here's the reason, and it's the last statement on your listening sheet tonight. Good works glorify God. Now, you have to see this through Paul's eyes and, and, and see why he says what he is. Now, what he is is because he said, I am what I am by the grace of God, or by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Paul looked at his own experience And he saw what he was before Christ came into his life. And here's what he said, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, when Paul recognized, realized where he came from and what he had been brought to, then the only thing that he could think of doing was glorifying God. How do humans glorify God? We can only do it by our works. That's the only way we can. It has to be through good works. And so when you see that people have been changed and there's something different in their lives and they're not what they used to be before, here's the thing the Bible says causes others to glorify God. Now let me go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and I want to read verse 16 to you. Now after Paul tells us what he was saved from, then he makes this statement. How be it for this cause... Think of the word cause. How be it for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering. Now pay close attention to the next phrase. For a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. The good works are a pattern for those who would believe. Now what does that mean? It means more dead people will be brought to life. When you start to glorify God by the good works that you do, more dead people can be brought to life. And the circle just keeps going round and round and round. It keeps repeating itself. You see, God's grace enables the gospel to be preached to others so that other dead sinners can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And folks, that is the Baptist way, and that is the Bible way, and we still preach it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that we read tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the grace of God, for the Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world to die for our sins. And Lord, we thank you that you um, love us so much that you are even give us the grace that we need and the faith that we need to trust in you. So we just ask you, Lord, you bless our people tonight in this time of invitation. Again, we thank you for your uh, blessed word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.